0: Earlier this season, I proclaimed during one of the season's international breaks that I was starting a pod series. I've long lamented the lack of quality commentators during Premier League matches, specifically in the area of examining close plays, and telling us why the referee made the calls that he did in light of the laws of the game. So I decided to do something about it and started reading through the laws myself. I got through the first two regarding the field of play and the ball before hitting the proverbial wall. I hit some serious Premier League slash FPL burnout, and I couldn't bring myself to continue the series. But the first episode with those first two laws is still out there in our podcast feed if you're subscribed to go back and find. But thankfully, now the summer has helped. Fun international matches have returned, and I'm ready to tackle my project once again. So let's jump right back in, shall we? Law number three, the players. As soon as I open the page to review this law, something stands out to me. There's a picture at the top of the page of Manchester City starting 11 before a particular match. Circa 2018-19, I'm guessing, based on Vincent Kompany's presence. This distracts me, and I find myself staring at the picture for several minutes. Why this picture? Why one so outdated? Someone went to this page recently because right above the picture is the subtitle, IFAB Laws of the Game 2021-22. Why not also update this picture? I linger on the picture even longer and notice the stupid faces that most of these guys make. Why exactly do we take pictures of the starting lineups before each match? This is a horrible picture. And not just because Kyle Walker's hair is still dyed here. Remember that? Ederson looks like an awkward human being. Zinchenko is staring into my soul. Jesus just wants Gundogan to stop touching him already. And the Silvas, well, they might be murderers. Why do we do this to players? Who wants these pictures? Is somebody collecting them? What a terrible thing to collect. Anyway, where was I? Right. Law number three. I know the basics. Two teams, 11 players per team, etc. But there's something I learned right away. First, you must have a goalkeeper. If a team wanted to employ the hockey strategy of an empty net at the end of the game, they can't. Allison can come up to score on a corner kick at the end of the game... But Liverpool can't sub Allison out for an 11th outfield player. It's not allowed. I find that fascinating and unnecessarily restricting. Why not allow it as a stoppage time substitution option? That could be a lot of fun. We would probably never see it actually employed as a strategy since 11 v 10 isn't as big an advantage in soccer as 6 on 5 is in hockey. But I'd love to see it tried once, wouldn't you? The substitution procedure is included in this law, which brings back all the memories. Rizio Sari wanted to sub off his Chelsea goalkeeper, Keppa, but Keppa refused to come off. Eventually Sari gave up and Keppa stayed in the match. But it was the beginning of the end for Keppa as Chelsea's starting keeper. Well, I see in this law why Sari gave up. Quote: If a player who is to be substituted refuses to leave, Play continues. End quote. Aside from the obvious reasons why this doesn't occur, I'm honestly a little surprised it doesn't happen more often, based on what's here in the law. When you watch a football match and see substitutions occur, it doesn't take long to notice that the new player is sometimes sprinting onto the pitch, especially if a set piece is about to be taken. The law says why. Quote, the substitution is completed when a substitute enters the field of play, end quote. It doesn't matter if the next play is about to be a corner kick. One step on the pitch, and you're in the game. After an entire boring section on how referees should handle situations involving extra people on the pitch, something I've never seen or even heard of before, the third law ends with a simple and yet very complex sentence. It's the only item under the heading team captain, it says, quote, the team captain has no special status or privileges, but has a degree of responsibility for the behavior of the team, End quote. What a loaded statement. And I absolutely love it. The concept of captain in soccer is foreign to most American sports fans. I'm guessing that few fans of American sports teams know who the captain of their favorite team is, In soccer, it's largely ceremonial and yet still a big deal. Referees will often seek out and advise captains. Good captains will get in between their players and the referees and speak on the team's behalf. In American sports, coaches get the ability to do this, especially during stoppages of play and timeouts. Those don't happen the same way in soccer, and the captain has to pick up the slack. Like I said, I love it. Law number four naturally follows from law number three. The fourth law is on the player's equipment. The law starts out innocently enough. Quote, A player must not use equipment or wear anything that is dangerous. End quote. This makes perfect sense. The very next sentence begins to outline what can't be worn. It doesn't start out where you might think. Quote, all items of jewelry are forbidden and must be removed, end quote. What constitutes jewelry? We get a list of examples. Necklaces, rings, bracelets, earrings, leather bands, rubber bands, etc. No wonder I've never seen a What Would Jesus Do? bracelet worn during a match. And just to be specific, there's one other thing added here. Quote, using tape to cover jewelry is not permitted, end quote. You just know someone tried that and ruined it for everyone else. The list of equipment that is required is not too surprising, except I love that the shirts must have sleeves. I wonder why that is. With the handball rules as they are, you'd think that tank tops might help referees identify where a player's arm touches the ball. Of course, I'm not sure going to a sleeveless shirt would be great for kit sales. Few football fans are ready to show off their guns in a tank top. The law also gives specific permission for goalkeepers to wear, quote, tracksuit bottoms, end quote. I don't know how long this has been in here, but I heretofore declare this the Allison addendum and enjoy that I have now been able to casually mention him twice in this monologue. I don't remember if I've ever seen a shoeless player score a goal with said shoeless foot, but it's also allowed. We can call this the Joe Jackson addendum. This is not a baseball podcast. Back to goalkeepers. They seem to provide the most interesting equipment-related content. Weirdly, I was just thinking about the following item during the opening match of Euro 2020. Quote, If the two goalkeepers' shirts are the same color and neither has another shirt, the referee allows the match to be played. End quote. By now you know that I like to consider what has prompted these kinds of things to be written into the laws. You know that a ridiculous referee... Maybe the Bulgarian Mike Dean, Dave, we don't have listeners in Bulgaria, do we, vacated a match because of this, and now it's in the laws to keep it from happening. Should undershirts have to be regulated? Well, they are. They have to be a single color and exactly match the sleeve of the main shirt. Apparently, you can also wear headgear, face masks, knee pads, and elbow pads. I'm a little surprised more Ollie McBurney types aren't wearing at least one of these things. I get why we don't see them, but I'm surprised someone isn't doing it. Instead, we just get the beautiful head wrap for bloody foreheads. Quote, Equipment must not have any political, religious, or personal slogans, statements, or images. End quote. It's still shocking to me that Ukraine is getting away with its border drawing on its kit for Euro 2020. I get it. It's not political. It's just a border. But it's a refuted border with Russia, so isn't that inherently political? At the risk of getting Russian election bots turned toward me, I'm still going to say it. I'm Team Ukraine on this one. I just can't believe UEFA allowed it. By the way, we've seen this law's boundary lines tested in a major way this year. Please allow me a little bit of a a rabbit trail on this. When World Cup qualifiers started this past spring, we saw clubs wear shirts... During pre match festivities, that spoke out against the human rights violations we are currently seeing in Qatar. Allow me just a brief tangent to say that I'm incredibly conflicted about this. I want to see the next World Cup as much as the next soccer fan, especially since the U.S. should hopefully do okay in it. But I don't want to support human trafficking and slavery while doing it. Is there a middle ground? Probably not. I know that I alone cannot fix the wrongs that are happening in Qatar, but I pray that those who have the power and authority to do something are going to do it. Soon. Man, it's crazy to see how specific and yet how beautifully general these laws are. And we haven't even gotten to the good ones yet. Don't worry, I'm determined to make myself and this podcast better by seeing this venture through to the end. I will know the laws better and use them to provide better analysis. Oh, and by the way, I'm four laws in, and guess which word I haven't seen used once? Intent. Can't wait to see if it's in the next one either.